unusual. It feels like we just had a message, but we are in the middle of a message series called The Movement, where we've been looking through the book of Acts at the, the expansion and the, the movement of the, of the local church, beginning from a small band of followers who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection and reaching out, out of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then moving to the, to the ends of the earth. We're, we're asking several questions. One of those questions that we asked is, how in the world did this movement survive all the persecution in the first century? How in the world did Christianity survive the Roman persecution, the Jewish hostility and tension? Or why in the world, another question you might ask is, why in the world is it that one-third of the earth's population claimed to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, came to save the world? How in the world is this possible? The answers to those questions are found in the book of Acts. And so we've been looking and studying through the first five chapters of the book of Acts. And we're moving now a little faster today, and especially now with the time that we have this morning. But the small movement began in, in Jerusalem. There's this small group of followers. They're spreading the message that Jesus of Nazareth had risen from the dead. And they were spreading this movement. And there was a lot of opposition. A lot of people said, you cannot share. You can't share that message. You can't speak in that name anymore. And so the early church, they began to pray for bolder prayers. They just, God, give us more boldness. Give us more boldness. Help us to be bold. Help us, would you stretch out your hands and enable us to do mighty signs and wonders among your people for your glory. These small followers saying, God, would you advance this message? We need you to come through. God, help us to be bold. And as they prayed those bold prayers, God kept answering their prayers. And even despite all the threats and warnings, at one point, the twelve apostles, the key leaders of the church, the eyewitnesses, those who saw the event, they walked with Jesus, they were part of His ministry. Then they saw Him being beaten, crucified. They saw Him in His risen body. Those early followers were rounded up by the Jewish leaders. And at one point, they were flogged, which means they were whipped. They were whipped with, this, with these whips with it. it had wood and steel, maybe even glass, tied into the end. They were whipped And the whip would be pulled out and it would pull just big chunks of flesh off their stomach and off their back. And they were told, you know, they were warned first, don't don't spread this message about that Jesus anymore. And then to give them proof that they were serious, they had them flogged. After they were flogged, here's what happened. Here's their response. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Now, how many of us would do that? You've just been beaten, and you're, you're rejoicing over the fact that we suffered for the name of Christ. Then it says, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So they didn't go undercover. They didn't hunker down in their houses and say, all right, we're going to secretly pass messages and tell everyone to meet us at these secret spots. Instead, they go into the temple, which is where they got themselves in trouble. And then they go house to house, and they're spreading the message to more and more people. They're teaching about Jesus. And they didn't huddle together and start saying, why do bad things happen to good people? They didn't ask questions like that. Instead, they determined to just stay committed to spreading the message of Jesus. And over the next several weeks, the movement, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, the movement just kept pushing out, pushing out, pushing out, pushing out, further and further into the surrounding areas. And things got so big and so complicated that structure was needed. And so they, they developed a hierarchy in order to meet the 
arising demands and needs of this growing church. And so they appointed seven leaders in the church to deal with some of the needs that had arisen. You can read about this in Acts chapter 6. And one of those leaders was a man named Stephen. You can read about Stephen's life in Acts 6 and 7. We don't know a whole lot about Stephen except for the fact that he was a deacon. He was a servant to meet the needs of this growing church. And since Stephen was not a part of that 12 apostle group, he wasn't a part of the the 12 apostles, the Jewish leaders, they saw this as their golden opportunity to take advantage of the situation. So what they did was they had Stephen arrested and they took Stephen away from the people and they, they put him on trial. And then they paid people to say lies about Stephen, to tell lies about him, things that weren't true, so that they could have him killed. And in his trial, in his defense, he preaches one of the longest sermons that we see recorded in Scripture, Acts 6 and 7, where he takes everyone from the Old Testament, he goes from the Old Testament, he starts preaching to this Jewish crowd, everything from the Old Testament all the way up through the current times, explaining that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's proclaiming Jesus, he's proclaiming the name of Jesus fearlessly, boldly, And at the end of his message, those religious leaders, they were so angry, they were so insulted that they took hold of him. They literally picked him up, drug him outside the city, and began to stone him to death. And stoning was a form of execution in those days. It was an official form of execution. And the first official would would basically push the naked victim off of a nine-foot scaffolding. And then the second official witness would come and drop a stone on their chest or on their head while the rest of the group joined in throwing rocks until he died. So Stephen died while spreading this message. It's a powerful story. Read it, Acts 6 and 7. He, and the, some of the things that Stephen said in his death, is just it's staggering when you read where he just commits himself to God and where he prays for the people that were killing him. But Stephen, he was the very first martyr of the church. He was the first one to die for his faith for spreading the message of Jesus. And once he died, this empowered the Jewish leaders because the Romans didn't do anything to stop them. And so this empowered the Jewish leaders to now begin to full court press to persecute the church. And so Luke, the author of Acts, begins to shift gears and he talks about this widespread persecution. And as he's talking about this persecution that begins, he introduces us to a character who makes the biggest difference in the local church. Here's how it reads. This is Acts 8, verse 1. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, meaning Stephen's execution. Saul was this Hebrew, name, it was this Hebrew man. That was his Hebrew name. You might know him as the Apostle Paul. And he is standing there giving approval to this brutal killing of this Christian Stephen. He's a powerful figure. He's watching this man die. People that are part of the stoning are laying their robes before Saul, who's this prominent Jewish figure. And it says this, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And because of that, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except for the apostles. So the, the, the apostles stay in Jerusalem, but everyone else was afraid for their lives. And so they kind of fled. They headed for the hills. And what's happening is all these new Christians throughout Jerusalem, as they're fleeing, they're in fact advancing the message of Jesus. Jesus said to the to that 12 or to the, actually the 120, the original followers, he said, you're going to be eyewitnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus was saying is persecution drove the church to scatter. People started suffering and dying and persecution 
It drove the church to branch out of Jerusalem, which began to you know, bring to pass the things that Jesus said would happen. The message was going to advance out of Jerusalem into the outer regions. And so it did. Many feared for their lives. But this was, in fact, God's way of advancing the message. God does things in unusual ways for us. Let's continue. It says, Devout men buried Stephen. And they made great lamentation over him, meaning they mourned deeply for their brother Stephen who died. But Saul, that devout Jewish leader, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. The reason he went house to house is because that's where the church would meet. They would meet in their homes. They didn't have a church building. We've been talking about how the church is not a building or an institution. It's a movement of people. It's a gathering, a congregation of people. We're trying to accomplish the things that God has, has commissioned or sent them to do. And so Saul went house to house looking for Christians in order to stamp out the local church, to have them arrested, tried, and killed. He wanted to put an end to the movement once and for all. Luke tells us that Saul, he persecuted the church in this way for about three years. He, just, he was just trying to round up all the Christians in the region and just stamp out this movement. And while this is happening, the church continues to spread. Just kept driving the church further and further into the surrounding regions. And at the end of year three, he turns from the number one enemy, killing Christians, to now the number one messenger. And here's how it happened. God chose the most unlikely person to carry the message of Jesus to outsiders. Look at this. This is Saul's transformation. This is Acts 9.1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. It's about a 150-mile journey. So that if any were belonging to the way, the way is a reference to Christians. They didn't call them Christians. They were known as followers of the way. So he's going to Damascus so that if any found belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. His point, what he was trying to do, is he's on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters to arrest any Christians that he finds. And he's going to drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried. And it says this, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, the city, and he suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Like he's asking, what is this voice? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. The implication is, what you do to my people, you do to me. Jesus is he's saying, look, what you do to my people, the church, you're doing it to me. See, we have to understand, we, the church, are the representation, or we're the representatives of Christ on the earth. We're his body on the earth. And Jesus is taking this personally. He's saying, you're doing this to me. And he tells him, but rise and enter the city, the city of Damascus, the one you're going to, and you will be told what you're to do. So Saul, he gets up and he realizes that he can't see. He was literally blind and the people around him had to lead him. He was blind, so they led him to this house. And he sits in this house for about three days, just waiting. And his worldview is about to be turned upside down. Because he's going to learn that he is God's primary messenger to the outsider. Now this is, you've got to understand, what you have to keep in mind what Saul was doing, what he was trying to do, what he was intending to do by stamping out the church. Now God is going to use him as the primary messenger to take the message of Jesus out of Jerusalem to the known, entire known world. 
Meanwhile, there's this other guy. His name is Ananias. And here's his story really quickly. Now there was a disciple, a disciple of Jesus, not an apostle, but a follower of Jesus at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. Now he's probably thinking, that name rings a bell. Saul of Tarsus. That name rings a bell. And then it clicks who this man is. Jesus' division, he continues, he says, And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, he's, he's really nervous here, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument. Now this is where this whole story of Christianity, it begins to make sense how Christianity survived the first century. He's saying, Go, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles to their kings and the children of Israel. See, this was not supposed to be just a Jerusalem message. This was a message for the entire world. Jesus said this is going to go out to the entire world. And so God decides to use this man, Saul. He would rename him Paul. And kings and the, and the, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now Paul's about to, or Saul's about to suffer in his training and in his ministry. Ananias decides, okay, I'm going to follow through with this thing. He goes to the house where Saul is. Can you imagine he's standing outside about ready to knock on the door thinking, this might not go very well for me. This is the man responsible for rounding up people I know. I've heard stories. This guy drug, drug people out of towns and we never saw them again. He's the number one enemy of Christianity, this movement. Ananias, he walks in and Luke tells us that he lays his hands on, on Saul's, he lays his hands on Saul and the the blind Saul, all of a sudden, you know, he's able to see. Something like scales falls from his eyes, and he's able to see again. And then they pray together, and Ananias talks about, hey, God's going to use you to advance this message to the Gentiles. You're going to be the primary messenger of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish world. He gives, he gives them this very, very unique mission. And then God begins to use Saul right there in that city. Saul began his ministry in the very city that he intended to ravage. In the city, he intended to, to really you know, go through and find Christians. He starts there, his public ministry. It says, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Right away, he's preaching Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He's the Son of God. Here's his message. He's the Son of God, and all who heard him were amazed, and said, Isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And hasn't he come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priests? Everybody's confused. Isn't this Saul the one trying to stamp out Christianity? And then it says, But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And then from there, Saul goes into this preparation mode. He goes into training mode. Saul prepared for his mission through intense study, through learning. He spent time learning from the rest of the disciples, the apostles, namely. And he just, he's getting training. For 12 years, he's getting trained. It says that at one point, he spent two solid weeks with Peter. Peter's one of the eyewitnesses. He's learning all the stuff from Peter. What did Jesus say? What did he do? 
How did this whole thing go down? He spent time with the brother of Jesus, James. He spent time in Jerusalem with the rest of the apostles. And he's just absorbing all, of the, all about the life and all about the teaching of Jesus because he was now going to take that message out. And after his training years, he spent over ten years on three different journeys starting churches among outsiders. This is what Paul began to do. He just goes on these three big journeys around the region. And over ten years, he's planting little churches. He's starting churches. Here's a map of, of Paul's missionary journeys. I don't know if you can really see it, but you've got the Mediterranean Sea there at the bottom right. And then to the right of that is Jerusalem. It's Palestine. And the whole region of, you know, that's where things began in Jerusalem. To the right of the Mediterranean. Right above the Dead Sea, if you can see it. And then Paul, he goes and he begins to kind of branch out all throughout Turkey and Greece, modern day Turkey and Greece, planting little churches, little movements, gatherings, congregations to spread the message of Jesus. Meanwhile, the apostles are all huddled together in Jerusalem, back in Jerusalem. They're all trying to get it right in one church. All the apostles, they're trying to get it right in in the city of Jerusalem, getting church right there. Meanwhile, Paul is tackling essentially the entire known world around the Mediterranean. It's almost like he said, hey, you guys, you guys take Jerusalem, I'll take the rest of the world. And literally, this is what he did. He brought some companions at different points. He's spreading the message all around the known world. And for 10 or 11 years, he goes on these three big journeys. He would go first to the synagogue, and he'd preach to the Jewish, to the, to the Jews. And he'd tell them about Jesus, and they didn't like his message. So usually they'd kick him out of the synagogue, drag him to the edge of the city, beat him. So one time, leaving him for dead, he would come to, he'd clean himself off, shake off the dust, and then he'd go look for the Gentiles, the non-Jews in the city, and he'd share with them. And he did this city after city, hostile areas, just groups that really opposed him. And he just kept focusing on spreading the message over and over. And then in A.D. 58, after about 10 to 12 years of that, he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem. And he was taken up to a place called Caesarea, and he was put in prison for another two years. And then at a certain point, he says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. I want to be tried by the emperor. And so they send him on this long and dangerous journey all the way across the Mediterranean, all the way to Italy, to Rome, to appear before the emperor, to plead his case there. And when he was in Rome, he was put under house arrest for more than two years. And while he was there under house arrest, he's writing letters back to the churches that he'd started. So he wrote a letter to the church at Ephesus, which we know as the book of Ephesians. He wrote another letter to the church at Philippi, which we know as the book of Philippians. He wrote other letters. Many of those letters have actually been lost, but some of them have been preserved, and they make up the bulk of what we know of the New Testament. You have the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus, and then you have all these letters. Many of the letters were letters from Paul to the churches. And after about two years, he was released from prison, and then he was rearrested in the year 66, and he spent another year and a half in prison under Nero the emperor. Nero hated Christians. He despised Christians. And in the year AD 67, probably early one morning, his prison doors were open, guards entered in, walked him outside the city, and very quickly Paul was familiar with the location they were heading because that was the part of the city where executions happened. And without any ceremony, without any eyewitnesses, and no one exactly knows where the spot that he was killed, Paul was executed, he was beheaded, and his life ended. 
But the impact of his life had really just begun because, man, this movement had already advanced. Churches were planted and they were thriving and growing. A year later, Nero, the emperor, committed suicide out of fear of being killed by his followers. But again, man, Paul, his, his legacy, we are sitting in this church because he was faithful to take the gospel outside, out of Jerusalem, out of Judea, Samaria, going into the, the known world, the entire known world, planting churches. Even when he was in Rome, you can, you can bet that things were sprouting up when he was in prison, among the guards, among the people he might have been able to interact with. Now, Paul's death did not catch God off guard. He was a bold man. He was a bold man. He knew he would suffer. He knew. He was told by Ananias, you will suffer greatly. And he, he surely did. He eventually died. He was beheaded. But this was the beginning of the global movement of the church. And Paul was a very, very highly educated man. He understood the Old Testament scriptures. And because of that, he knew how to take the Old Testament scriptures that made sense to the Jews. He knew how to connect that message to Jesus. And so what he did is he began to explain and connect the message of Christ, not only to the Jew, but to the person with no Jewish religious background. He knew how to take the core teaching and reduce it down to the the main point, the heart of the message. He knew how to get to the heart of the message. The bottom line, in 1 Corinthians, one of the churches he planted in Corinth, he writes this letter, and in this letter we get these verses where he gives the synopsis of what it means, what's the message all about. This is one of the clearest passages of what the heart of the gospel is. It reads this way. He says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, meaning if you lose sight of everything else, you must not lose sight of this. This is the key. This is the most important. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 other brothers at one time. This wasn't just a guy with a crazy vision. At one point, Jesus appeared to 500 at one time. Most of whom are still alive, he says. It's interesting that he makes that statement. Most of whom are still alive. It's almost like he's saying, look, if you want to get yourself a boat ticket from Corinth, get a boat ticket, go down to Jerusalem, and find out. There's people that you can still, they're still living, that saw him alive. You can go find and verify the proof of this story. Though some have fallen asleep, some of them had died. Then it says in verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. It's powerful. He's saying, God chose to use even me because he was gracious. But what he did is he brought to those of us with no church background, with no religious training, with no religious education, without any Bible understanding, the things that you cannot ignore in this, in this passage. Here's the bottom line. He says four simple statements. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. This is, the, this is the core of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. And here's what he's saying to all of us who might wrestle with questions about, is this for real? 
Maybe you're here and you're wrestling with Christianity. Is this really, should I give my life to this? Should I commit my life to Christ? Sometimes we get hung up on all sorts of questions like, did God create the world in seven literal days or was it seven symbolic figurative days? Paul was saying, you know what? Here's what you need to know. Here's the bottom line. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. That's, that's the issue. Or, hey, I've been reading out of the Bible and I'm trying to understand it and I get to the last book of the Bible and it's the book of Revelation. There's a lot of symbols and there's, there's blood and there's falling objects and there's dragons and crazy women driving, riding dragons. And I can't figure out what all this means. Paul would say, look, listen to what's most important. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Sometimes we get so hung up on, on some of the non-essential issues. And honestly, we don't want to minimize some of the questions you have. You might ask questions about, I can't reconcile all the pain in the world or all the evil that seems like is going on. How could God allow that? We don't want to minimize that. But again, Paul is saying, these are the irreducible minimums that you need to know. Christ died for you, for your sins. He, he was actually declared dead because they put him in the ground. He was buried. They knew he was dead. Then three days later, he arose and he appeared. He was seen by eyewitnesses. That's the core issue. That's not the, that's not the point you get to years down the road. That's actually the starting point, Paul is saying. That's where you start. You might be wrestling with, man, I've been disappointed by Christian after Christian after Christian. Don't let the Christians who disappoint you cause you to not follow Christ. Or don't let the church that's disappointed you not let you follow Christ. Or, you know, don't let, the, don't let the things that have happened that you've read about, these are the core issues you need to wrestle with. Did Christ die on the cross for your sins? Was He buried? Did He rise from the dead? And did He appear? Those are the, those are the irreducible minimums. The band's going to come up here and we're going to wrap up our service But the common thread for many of you here is that at one point, you you made that decision. You probably had all sorts of other questions wrestling around in your mind that maybe weren't answered for you. But at one point, you decided, you know what? I believe Christ died for me. And I respond today to that. I embrace Him personally. And if you've never come to that point, you know that's, that's what we want to encourage you to wrestle with. That's where, that's where, you know, my hope is that as a church that we could come alongside you and help you, help you understand the core of the gospel. And there are some other things that, that God wants you to know. There's a lot of other things about how to grow and there's a lot of other things that we'll talk about of how it applies to life. But if you get one thing in this life, this is the big issue that God says you cannot miss. If you miss it, you're missing the big thing. So... On the back of your connection card, you'll see there's a couple of next steps. I want to draw your attention to these. The first one says, read Acts 9-14. through 14. We've been reading the book of Acts so that as we're talking through it, we've got some more context. Acts 9-14 through 14 would be, if you're pressing on in that reading, I want to encourage you to keep going. Another step is, maybe you need to embrace Jesus personally for the very first time. And maybe you've been wrestling with it, and there's other questions that are holding you up. And maybe today you're like, you know what? I believe those, those four statements. Christ died for me. I believe that. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. I, I respond today to that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. 
If, if that's you, would you check that box right there and just let us know I'm ready to cross that line of faith. And we'll make sure we connect with you and help you understand what that really, what that involves. Make sure you don't, if you have any questions and you want to talk to someone about it, we can connect you. Another step is sign up for Just Walk Across the Room, the growth group number one. It's a growth group talking about how to grow, or I'm sorry, how to share your faith with others. It's one of the things Paul did really well. He was bold in his, in his sharing. And then the fourth next step is just encouraging our, our, I hope everybody will check this box. I'm going to pray for the Woods and the Flannerys this week. Just kind of saying, I'm going to pray for them as they begin this new stage of their life and their ministry. I'll commit to pray for them. There's a lot of exciting things coming up in their lives and their ministry and family, blooming family for the woods coming. Their daughter's arriving here really soon. And so let's pray together. Father, we just thank you, God, for the work you're doing here in our lives.